Could it be that the Iranian regime, radical Islam, is ready to fall? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on this Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. This is Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you. If you have a Jewish-related question of any kind related to the Hebrew language, the Hebrew Scriptures, Messianic prophecy, Jewish apologetics, Jewish background to the New Testament, Israel today, Jewish literature, give me a call, 866-34-TRUTH. If you've heard some strange things online or report it in different ways, and want to verify whether they're true or not, and they tie in with Israel, the Jewish people, by all means, phone lines are open, 866-348-7884. Before we go to your phone phone calls, before we uh, talk to you about some Hebrew language issues that you'll find interesting, I first want to focus in on Iran. Is it possible that the Iranian regime— the radical Islamic Iranian regime under the leadership of Ayatollah Khamenei, is it possible that it is ready to crumble, that it is ready to fall? You know there has been great shaking in Iran for quite a number of reasons, but since President Trump decided to take out arch-terrorist General Soleimani, and, and he was really poised in many ways to expand his his terror network, and to bring in more and more countries under the Islamic regime that he was pushing for, and according to some reports, was ready to target more American bases. A whole lot has happened. Of course, Iran admitted to accidentally shooting down Ukrainian airline. So here you have 176 innocent people that are leaving the country. By innocent, I mean they're not terrorists, they're not, they're not soldiers, they're not engaged in battle. And here they are shot down by the ineptness of the regime and, and protests in the street. It was a remarkable scene. I don't know if you saw this, but, but student protesters and others were marching down the streets in Tehran, and there on the ground you, you had the, the flags, the American flag and the Israeli flag. And what you're supposed to do is march on them, walk on them to show your contempt. Remember an an annual Jerusalem Day in Israel that crowds, massive crowds will gather and they shout death to America and they shout death to Israel. America is considered the great Satan and, and Israel the little Satan. And then people would burn flags, America and Israel. And, and here, they would walk on either side. They wouldn't walk on the flags. And the few that did, people were yelling at them. I, I mean, it's extraordinary footage to see what's actually going on. And then President Trump, as he stood up for the Hong Kong protesters pushing back against mainland communist China, he stood up with the Tehran protesters, the Iranian protesters, and said to the Iranian regime, don't kill the protesters. And sent a note to the protesters, we're standing with you. And we have been standing <laughs> with you. Let's, let's remember something. Iran was not always a militantly Islamic country. When the, the Shah of Iran had to flee for his own life, 
when Ayatollah Khomeini came into power in the late 1970s, it was a very secular country, so you always had a strong Muslim presence. It was overall an Islamic country, but in many, many ways, it was very secular, all right? So this, this is very major to understand that many Iranians, I'm not even talking about for religious reasons in terms of their converting to Christianity, but they don't like Islam being forced on them. Women will, will wear the hijab in, in public and will cover their faces or, or be veiled in public, but then in private, they'll, they'll party. And then you have the rise of Christianity within Iran, and it is growing and growing and increasing. It's still underground in house churches and things like that, but that's growing. And then you have the economic sanctions that America is bringing on Iran, and and that is hurting the nation. Will there be a critical mass that arises to overthrow the current regime? A a few headlines get my attention. Uh, One from the Washington Examiner. It reports, this is January 12th, Iran's only female Olympic medalist defects amid mass protests against the regime. Wow. And, and, and as, as you read the article, uh, she goes on and says she's, she's 21 years old. She posts on Instagram that, that she's defecting from Iran, permanently left the country for Europe. Uh, she slammed the Iranian regime for oppressing women and for largely dictating her own life. She said, let me start with a greeting, a farewell, or condolences. I am one of the millions of oppressed women in Iran who they have been playing with for years. And she said, they took me wherever they wanted. I wore whatever they said. Every sentence they ordered me to say, I repeat it. Whenever they saw it, they exploited me. I wasn't important to them. None of us mattered to them. We were tools. So she's saying, I was used. Whatever statements you heard from me, I was used by the regime. I wonder how much this will spread on social media. Look, when, when Khomeini successfully overthrew the Shah in the late 1970s, what happened was he had been exiled by the Shah of Iran. And the Shah of Iran ruled with an iron fist. The Shah of Iran had a secret police and, and ruled with an iron fist. So on the one hand, it was a fairly secular country and, and it was very worldly in many ways. And then you have your religious Muslims in the midst of it. Uh, At the same time, he ruled. His regime stood strong. He had to flee the country before Khomeini ever arrived in the country. He was exiled to France, and he would put out teachings from France. Uh, I saw a video called uh, God Fights Back (laughs) many years ago, really eye-opening. So probably 1999, tremendously eye-opening video about the rise of religious fundamentalism worldwide beginning in the late 1970s. And what happens is he tapes messages in France. They are then duplicated and smuggled into Iran. And then the the mullahs, the Iranian religious leaders, they then preach his sermons on Fridays in their mosques. And it creates enough of an uproar in the country and enough of a mass turn to follow Khomeini that the Shah, with all of his power, with the secret police and all this, has to flee for his life. So how much more powerful is social media now? How much more Iranians have access to these things and can't be fully cut off from the outside world, no matter what Iran tries to do? Could it be that as these things go on, that the social media, that, that the, the young people in Iran, they'll realize, hey, we're, we're being told a pack of lies. And, and, and that's why they were so upset with the Ukrainian airline coming down. It's like, well, we did this? We did this? Here, a, a, another example. Uh, this is a headline from the Daily Mail a few days back. 
celebrities turn on Iran regime after Tehran admits downing plane. So it's not just the protests and the crowds. The article says a string of Iranian celebrities have also turned on the regime, and two state TV hosts have quit over Tehran's three days of false reporting on the crash. They're saying, enough with the lies. We've had it with the lies. So this is something that has been an ongoing problem. The people realize we have been lied to. And look, as much as there is media bias, and it can be bias on the left and bias on the right, and as much as we have, quote, fake news in America, we, we have access to so much information. And there's so many other dissenting voices putting out other narratives that you can study, you can look. at When you have basically state-run TV and you have certain messaging being put out, and then they realize, hey, we, we have been lied to. This is not good, and, and the people have integrity of heart. That's another sign of a potential crack. And then an um, article from the Jerusalem Post, uh, this is January 16th, so today, former Iranian crown prince, we are beginning to see the end of the regime. He said there's no point to try to negotiate with the Islamic Republic. So this is Reza Pahlavi, so he would be a descendant of the Shah, right? the Shah that was deposed and then came to America and died of cancer. Uh, He said that the recent protests in Iran are different than previous demonstrations. Quote, people smell the opportunity for the first time in 40 years. This time is very different from 2009, even very different from 1997. The people have had it. Today's generation of young Iranians cannot take it anymore. They want to have an opportunity for a better future. They want to be on the path of modernity and freedom. The only thing that stands between them and the free world is this regime. So could it be? Could it be that the regime is ready to crack, ready to fall? I think you can make a good case for that happening. On the other hand, I was sent an article by a colleague who lives in Bethlehem. I can't go into more details because he sent it in to be published in a a major online publication. So if it's going to go out, it goes out. Then I'll quote it from there. Otherwise, we'll see how we can help get his message out. But he said, no, Iran is actually more dangerous than ever. And he says, look, they still have access to to all of the weaponry they have, and they still have these networks in the Middle East of of, of terror. But what's fascinating is this. Shia Muslims, so you have the Sunni and the Shia. So the Sunni Muslims and the Shiite Muslims, the Sunni being in the majority, but in Iran, that is a a Shiite country. Iraq is actually majority Shiite, but a, a large percentage of Sunni as well. But say countries like Saudi Arabia, they're Sunni. So... There is a belief within Islam that there is the hidden imam, the 12th imam, that he has been in hiding, that he was born, what, in the 800s or something like that, whatever the year was, and he has been in hiding since then. And and he is ready to be revealed, but there has to be world upheaval for this to happen. And this is part of the Iranian plan to extend their regime of terror and to bring world upheaval. And then the Mahdi, as he's called, will be revealed and will bring world peace, namely subjection to Islam. And that's why some think that the Antichrist could be Muslim. So here's what's fascinating. And here's what my my colleague posted, that on the day Soleimani was killed, Iran's supreme leader, al-Husseini Khamenei, tweeted, we congratulate Imam Mahdi, and then there's AJ, which in Arabic or a call for may Allah hasten his being revealed. We congratulate Imam Mahdi 
and Soleimani's pure soul and condole the Iranian nation on this great martyrdom. All right? <clears throat> so why is he congratulating Imam Mahdi? So allegedly born 879, the 12th Imam has been in hiding. Well, there's information in this article about them saying, yeah, we've met with him privately, and he's given us his wisdom and his teaching. So this is apparently some Muslim guy that's alive today that they claim has been here through the generation. So probably some demonized radical Islamic leader. I mean, that's what we're talking about. But my colleague thinks that Iran is going to export terror and try to bring unholy upheaval to prepare the way for him. How will it unfold? Let's pray for God's best for the people of Iran, the people of the Middle East, for the kingdom to come to this world. Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. A shout out to everyone in Oxnard, California, or nearby. Join me for special meetings Friday night, Saturday day and night, Sunday morning. All the details are on my website, sdrbrown.org. You'll see it right on the itinerary there. Join me. Any of the meetings, all the meetings, I trust that God will really stir us. It's not Jewish-related themes. We're more focusing on revival and, and renewal and things like that, I believe you'll be deeply enriched as you come. And just another reminder, we're down to maybe our last uh, 12 or so seats, don't know the exact count right now, for our Israel tour. When we have two buses, so it's going to be 100 people. It's intimate. It's wonderful. You get to know each other well. We get to spend lots of quality time together, especially in the evenings, hanging out, getting in the Word, praying, opening the Scriptures together, joining in on my live radio show really the trip of a lifetime. And that's, that's just the icing on the cake. The tour is while you're there. The tour in the daytime is, is stunning. It's not a political tour. It's a biblical tour. It is, there's, there's just nothing like it. It's extraordinary when you walk the land where the events of Scripture happen and where future events will yet unfold. I, I was just talking to a pastor last night about this that it still amazes me. As many times as I've been to the old city of Jerusalem, as many times as I've prayed at the Western Wall, that to be there and, and then to be there with our tour group as we pray together and spend time crying out to God, there it's, it's just something about it that's different. And, and out of this normal world, it takes us back in time. It, it brings us to the future as well. So only a few seats left. If you're planning on going, the trip is, is in May, May 11th to 20th. Join us. Go to AskDrBrown.org. You'll find it right on the homepage, all the information about the tour. Sign up, join us. By the way, if you're not a monthly supporter, a torchbearer, helping us with a dollar a day or more, sign up, become a torchbearer, because you'll, you'll get 10% back on the trip, which will basically put that money right back in your pocket. So you'll be supporting us. We'll be blessing you with new material every month, and that money will go right back into your pocket for the tour. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's start with Josh in Washington. Welcome to the Line of Fire. 
Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Brown. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Um, I'd like to ask you, there's, there's just this kind of confusion that I've had between when Jesus talks about in Mark 9, when he's talking to the disciples about um, tempting little ones, and that they, those who tempt the little ones will go down to hell or Gehenna. And then, so it's about Gehenna, that's that issue. And then how does that compare to, say, when Job is talking about Sheol? Like, what's, in the Jewish context, what's the, uh, what are those two things, or how are they related, and how do they yeah. differ, Gehenna and Sheol? Right, so uh, Sheol and, and Gehenna both go back to Hebrew concepts. Uh, so right. Gehenna goes back to the, the, the sons of Hinnom, uh, the, the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. So uh, that's, they both go back to, to Hebrew concepts, but Sheol is generically the place of the dead. It's not specifically the place of punishment. It's the place right. where all the dead go. Sometimes it's synonymous with the grave, it, the netherworld in kind of a, a nebulous way. In the book of Job, mm-hmm. you get the idea of it's the place of the dead, but then kind of just where, you know, the... If you've been oppressed, the oppression ends, and the wicked can't rule anymore. And uh, but it's not, it's not a place where you have a defined afterlife, where you have the defined afterlife of the righteous in the presence of God or the wicked being punished. It's just generic for the place of the dead, and therefore should not be translated with hell. So that's a mistranslation of Sheol is translated with hell. On the flip side, Gehenna does speak of fiery punishment. It does speak of final judgment. Uh, it is tied in with, say, the concept of the lake of fire. So uh, all of those things would, would be tied in, Matthew 5, giving warnings about the fires of hell and future judgment. So in ancient Judaism, there were beliefs about this being eternal, that there was an eternal fire. Uh, there are other beliefs that developed over a period of time that punishment lasts for a certain amount of time, etc. But the idea of an eternal hell fire was something that was certainly currently taught in the days of Jesus and certainly something that he alludes to. So separate from the place of the dead in the generic sense, Sheol, where everybody goes upon death. And again, it could be talking about the physical grave or just the netherworld and generically, but specifically, mm-hmm. Gehenna is the place of future fiery punishment of the wicked. Right. And so is that what Dante and his Inferno relates to? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, yeah, of Gehenna. course, he takes it above and beyond what Scripture uh, teaches. <laughs> and then that becomes yeah. something that in medieval church and beyond becomes a way to really control people with these images of the future torture if you disobey the church. But yeah, that Dante's right. Inferno would come from the verses about a future torment, future punishment, uh, gnashing of teeth, blackness, darkness, fire, all those images combined. Hey, Josh, thank you for the question. Much appreciated. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to John in California. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. How's it going? It's great to talk with you. Uh, yeah, actually, I had an alert that you'd be calling. So you are a Gentile, but saved out of the occult and then ended up in the University of Judaism. So uh, how that happened, and what do you think our listeners should know about the reality of the occult? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, a number of things. Uh, I know time is, is limited, but um, if I could just give a, a really brief 
one minute condensed uh, version of, of um, you know, kind of who I am and how that, that happened. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in the uh, suburb of Los Angeles, California. When I was about 10 years old, my uh, mother was diagnosed with bipolar manic depression. And mm. she's since passed away. But um, while I was uh, a child, it was a bit confusing because I was raised with the teachers of the Baptist Church. And it, it kind of uh, was confusing as to how she could experience these things. Although being Christian, it was almost like, well, where's the efficacy of Christianity? So I yeah. took a, a number of years in a rebellion and sought out um, the, the occult magic, mysticism. Um, we ironically lived next to a, the largest Buddhist temple in the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> so wow. at a young age, I'd go up there and meditate with the monks and light incense, etc. And then I would go to a, uh, an occult bookstore in Hollywood. Uh, long story short, I, there's, there's uh, a number of uh, incidences that happened in between, but I got heavily deep into the occult. And uh, when I was 17, I graduated high school early and went to the Air Force. While I was in there, I was involved in a major vehicle accident. Should have died. Uh, the, seat, the, the ceiling of the vehicle was on the seat of the vehicle. And the only thing that saved me, uh, besides the, the Lord himself, I believe, was that I was not wearing my seatbelt. So it was a very supernatural experience. I feel like, you know, the Lord actually went in and grabbed me out and threw me out of the vehicle. But I was hospitalized for about two weeks. And during that time, I was reflecting on my um, occult studies and my, my, how deep I was into it. But I had to recognize that there was an all-powerful being at the time. But I was still too stubborn to return to Christianity. And so the thought came to me, well, where was this split? between Judaism and Christianity. Uh, essentially, do, do Jews have the monopoly on the true God, the one true God? And so while I was healing in the hospital, I requested a Jewish chaplain, a rabbi, come in to speak with me, as opposed to a pastor or somebody of my Christian background. So uh, again, fast-forwarding, he basically uh, uh, gave me some advice, and um, as I was finishing my enlistment in the Air Force, I was looking to uh, get my degree, as well as continue my search for truth, so to speak. And so I was referred to the University of Judaism in Los Angeles. I figured, mm -hmm. well, it's an accredited university. I can get my degree while at the same time kind of exploring these ideas. And so for a time there, there was the consideration to convert to rabbinical Judaism. But I was keeping an open mind, and... We could talk a little bit more about this, but there were a number of unique courses like uh, Zen and Hasidism, uh, Introduction to the Zohar, Ancient Jewish Civilization. So I was pretty well um, exposed to a lot of uh, Jewish thought. And as I got more exposed to it, uh, it became harder to accept Christianity because there were a lot of, at the time, what I thought good arguments to dispute it. In fact, we even studied the New Testament at the University of Judaism, but from an uh, anti-missionary perspective, so to speak. Right, right. <laughs> um, and so, uh, ironically, uh, somebody had introduced me to you as an apologist, and you were very instrumental in kind of bringing me back home, so to speak. I had seen one of your debates with uh, Rabbi Shmuley Botea back when the uh, Passion of the Christ was coming out. Right. And I saw you debating him, and it... it everything kind of clicked as far as you were able to present a very academic Jewish argumentation, something that a lot of, uh, even though I'm Gentile, 
a lot of Gentile Christian apologists really couldn't speak to me on. Um, and so I, I started to look into more of Messianic Judaism and the uh, Hebrew roots of, of, of the faith, and that led to a much bigger um, exploration that finally led me back to the Lord. But as I said, there, there are many of things that happen in between. I just want to give a short version. Interesting. Of uh, amazing. Yeah, I'm blessed to have played a role in your journey. And, and you've also come out with a, a strong burden for conservative issues. We've got to run. We've got to break. But is there a website where folks can, can follow some of what you're doing? Yeah, well, there's actually two. The, the one that I've uh, recently uh, uh, put out for um, dealing with, with people who have dealt with the uh, cult past is that... I'll tell you what. St- stay, right, stay right there. Stay right there uh, with the music. We won't hear it clearly enough. We'll come back and give those websites. Friends, phone lines are open. 866-34-TRUTH. Interesting journey. God is faithful. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the Line of Fire on this thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. Phone lines are open. If you have a Jewish-related question for me, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. I've got some great-looking questions waiting for me here. I'm going to get to them momentarily, momentarily. And was just chatting with uh, John from California with a fascinating testimony. And uh, we'll share websites if you want to follow some of what he's doing, helping folks with the occult and some other things. We'll get you to uh, those momentarily. All right, and Howard, we got some folks waiting for you to get their info online. Okay, uh, before we go to the, the phones, a few days ago, I got a call from a black Hebrew Israelite, and he was going to set the record straight and correct me in my errors, allegedly. And he had studied 20-something years, so I asked him, I asked him politely, well, what about my studies? I've been studying 48 years. Well, you're wrong. So, I mean, I, I had a little fun with him on it. I said, well, you're wrong. I've been studying longer than you've been studying, you know. But he was now going to set the record straight. And, and this is the type of gross ignorance we deal with all the time, the type of extraordinary error we deal with all the time, things that are so basic. that And you think, oh, and people believe this. So he wanted to argue that Abraham had his name changed from Avram, Abram, to Avraham, because it had to do with the word Ham. That's, that's the name of, of uh, Egypt, one of the names of, of Egypt, or the father of, of Egypt in the Bible. Egypt in Hebrew is, is Mitzrayim. But Ham, the, the father, the Hamitic peoples, right? And that allegedly it meant baked, so these were black people. So, okay, first, first problem is Ham has nothing to do with Avraham. They are two different letters, Ch and Ha. He is called Avraham because he will be the father of a Hamon, a multitude of nations. So 
Uh, for those watching, we're going to put the Hebrew word for ham up. There's there's a squiggle on the bottom. That's an accent. You can ignore that. The What looks like a little T is the vowel, the, the ah sound. But you'll see, so on the right is is the, the chet, okay? So it's, it's almost like a, a rectangle with no bottom on it, okay? And one of the, the line on the top left goes over a little bit, all right? If, if you can just picture that, all right? So if you start it on the bottom right, you go up and then just a circular top a little bit or a curved top a little bit straight across and then overlap a little bit, then go straight down. That's the chet. You can see aside from the open bottom, it is closed all the way around. Now, ham does not mean baked. Ham means hot or warm. That's what it means. And when it is referenced in the Hebrew Bible about being out in the sun or, or we've been beaten with the sun, it would just mean darkened, okay? And in modern Hebrew, ham does not, aside from meaning hot or warm, it means brown, okay? Shachor is black. Ham is brown. So if it did refer to a color, it would refer to brown, not black. All right, so that's the chet in ham. Avraham. Avraham, so the second letter from the end, on the, if you're looking at it from, uh, so you're reading it from right to left, the second letter from the end in Hebrew is the he. And it's got two little dots on top. That's an accent. Ignore that. And the vowel looks like a T beneath it. But if you're looking at it, you'll see that it is open on the side. In other words, three seconds of learning Hebrew. You know, I'd said you'd learn it an hour, I mean, to know all the, the letters, but three seconds. You see, okay, the chet is different than the hey. They are two completely different letters with different sounds. One with a guttural ha, the other just a ha without that, okay? So anyone who knows Hebrew at all knows that these are two different letters and that Avraham has nothing to do with ham. And by the way, the, the Hamitic peoples are not the the fathers of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those are the Shemitic peoples, the descendants of Shem. But this is the type of ignorance that's out there. And, and, and the frustration is you present the truth. Here, one plus one equals two. Here, you have your one here, put it with my one. How many do we have? Two, not three, not eight, not 11, not one. And some people are like, no, no, man, you're deceiving us. You're a trickster. You're a wizard. We don't believe you. So at that point, they're given over to deception. You have to pray that God would rattle their cage in a certain way, that, that in his love he would shake them so that they have an internal awakening. Realize, My God, what? I'm believing lies. I'm believing lies. May God have mercy and open eyes to the truth. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Scott in Missouri. Welcome to the line of fire. You are on the air. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me again. Appreciate it every time. Hey, a quick question. Uh, Hebrews 48. And this kind of goes to your the comment you just made about Abraham and multitude of nations, because I've, I've looked at that a few times about, okay, if he's the father of many nations, we know the nation of Israel, and technically you could break it down to 12 tribes, but what other nations was he the father of? So I was doing a study uh, with Paul in Romans, and it came across, uh, the passage, because I listen to, to you, and I listen to Dr. White, and Blayton's Fall. I got a lot of, uh, a multitude of facets of different 
ideologies, mm-hmm. and it's great because it opens it opens up avenues to to explore. And when Paul says, "Hey, I don't want you to be uh, ignorant uh, that a partial hardening of Israel happens until the," and it, uh, I'm an NASB, ESB kind of guy, and it says the uh, the fullness of the Gentiles has come to pass. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it harkened me back to Genesis 48 and 48. 19, uh, because that phrase Paul would be very aware of in, in, in the prophecy of, mm-hmm. of Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, because he prophesied, Jacob, was it Jacob that prophesied, or Joseph, Joseph prophesied? No, Jacob prophesied over Ephraim and Manasseh. And he said, the, the younger brother shall be greater than he. His descendants shall become, and my NASB says, multitude of nations. I look it up in the Hebrew. And it's Melo Goyim. The word Goy is where the Greeks get the word Gentile from. Do those two phrases correspond to each other in, in the fact that Abraham was prophesied to be a, a, a father of many nations, and Ephraim and Manasseh are prophesied to become, or Manasseh is prophesied to become the full, and it says the NESC has a little notation next to it, and if you click on it, it says, Multitude should actually read better in the Hebrew as fullness. He shall be the fullness of nation. Yeah, so right? here, here's the whole phrase, yeah, here, here's the whole issue. The whole issue is Paul makes an absolute distinction between Gentiles and Israel in, in the passage, Romans 9, 10, and 11, over and over and over again. Actually, through the whole book, makes a clear distinction. And, and Israel is the, the wider Jewish people, the 12 tribes— as, as he references them also in, in the book of Acts, all right? So Israel is the 12 tribes, so that includes Ephraim and Manasseh. So the, fu- the fullness of, of nations or peoples that are spoken of um, uh, under, under Ephraim uh, there, or, or, not, or under Ephraim and Manasseh in the, in the prophecy, are not talking about Gentiles. Uh, Abraham itself, uh, God says to him, you'll be a great goy, a, a great... You're just getting some background noise, Scott, so just... You can hear me, but can't speak. Otherwise, we'll just hear a lot of scratching and other noise there. So, yeah, there's parallel phraseology, but Paul uses that all the time. For example, uh, when God says to Israel in Hosea 1, you're not my people, and then with repentance, you are my people, he then applies that to the Gentiles. It's not written about the Gentiles. Hosea 1 has nothing to do with Gentiles. It's about the nation of Israel. But Paul applies it just as it happened with the nation, so also it happens to the, to the Gentiles, that they were not God's people, but now become God's people. So he's using words, phrases, expressions, and, and you do well to point to that. But Ephraim and Manasseh are not Gentiles. Ephraim and Manasseh are part of the people of Israel. Re- remember, the New Jerusalem will have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And James, Jacob, writes to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So these are believers from all the, the tribes of Israel that are represented here, which include Ephraim and Manasseh under Joseph. Uh, so it's parallel phraseology, but the Gentiles are the Gentiles. The Gentiles are not the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh. It's just speaking of the, the peoples as they multiplied and as they grew and expanded, uh, the, the tribes of Israel, and then their families and how those grew and expanded. But it's definitely not referring to the Gentiles as Israel. And you get, you know, British Israelism teaching or that America is actually Israel or things like that. It's, it's not what the text is saying. Ephraim and Manasseh, if you go through Scripture, the, the good thing to do is just keep going through all the Old Testament 
and and then trace it out. So here in in um, in Genesis uh, forty eight nineteen, and I'll I'll just read the 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 larger uh, passage here. I'll, I'll read in the the NET just because that's what I have in front of me. Um, when Joseph saw that his father placed his right hand in Ephraim's head, it displeased him because he's the younger. So he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a nation, and he too will become great. In spite of this, his younger brother Ephraim will be even greater. So I added Ephraim there. And his descendants will become a multitude of nations, or yes, a fullness of nations. But just trace through Ephraim the rest of the, of the Hebrew Bible. And you'll see it still refers to a distinct people. It is not a, a reference to Gentiles or Gentile Christians do not trace back somehow to, to Ephraim ultimately. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's a good question, but it just breaks down in terms of Paul's usage. Even there, he's saying, I'm writing to Gentiles to provoke Israel. Who's Israel? The 12 tribes, the people as a whole. So there's, there's partial hardness on Israel. So that's Jewish people worldwide in mass don't believe, but that hardness will be lifted when the fullness of the Gentiles, as everybody else, comes in. And on the heels of that, and hopefully provoked by that, the Jewish people en masse will turn to the Messiah. Hey, Scott, thank you for the literate question. I do appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. All right, I'm going to get to some more questions on the other side of the break. If you just tuned in, remember, we just have maybe our last dozen or so seats available for our Israel trip. May will be here Before you know it, God willing, we'll be standing in Israel together in just a few months. So if you're planning on going, sign up today. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the line of fire on this thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Uh, Some breaking news just getting the headlines now. Someone texted me about this yesterday. And just seeing the headlines now, Trump administration protects school prayer. The U.S. Department of Justice and the Department of Education announced a proposed rule that will provide guidance on legal protections for prayer and other religious expressions in public schools. The purpose of this updated guidance is to provide information on the current state of the law and to clarify the extent to which prayer in public schools is legally protected. This would be a pushback against the Supreme Court decision. What was it? Engel versus Vitaly in 1962 that removed organized public prayer from public schools. Potentially very, very major news. We shall see how this plays out. 866-34-TRUTH. All right, back to the phones with your Jewish-related questions. We go to Mike in Illinois. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I wanted to you know, personally thank you. Uh, first off, you are a Jew. And 
you know, there's a lot of all this fake Jew garbage going on, and um, it's it's all it's all a bunch of bunk. And you know, Jewish people, all the all the things that are said about them are totally false. I mean, some of the best people in my life, you know, in my lives of my parents, even were Jews from Squirrel Hill, you know, and uh, you know, a lot of the mythology out there is false and. I owe my entire life to the Jewish people because they, their their belief system, um, you know, the studies of their, their their writings kept me alive when my brother passed away in 2002. I didn't have any answers, mm. and uh, you know that to this day it's still the same. Um, so you personally, thank you. Um, you know, uh, I wish people would just simply read their text and realize that, you know, that Matthew 2.2 2 says, you know, that Yeshua is king of the Jews without trying yeah. to get into genealogies and try to prove who is and who isn't the people of the book or whatever. Yeah, and, and let, me just, uh, let, let me just mention yeah, this quickly. You know, uh, there's mythology about the Jewish people in all directions, and bottom line is, Jews are like everybody else. You've got good points, bad points. Uh, different Jews are different. Uh, different, you know. You've got religious. You've got secular. You've got Jews in Israel, Jews in America, and different parts of the world. Uh, you've got Jews that are some of the most generous people in the world, and Jews that are stingy. I mean, you just that's it's it's a mixed bag like anything else. But the caricatures. That the Jews are this. The Jews are evil. The Jews want to take over the world. That today's Jews are not Jews. All those things are our lies, and by God's grace, we continue to combat those. So, yeah, I didn't have anything to do with being born into a Jewish home. That wasn't my choice. But obviously, to dispel the rumors, to dispel the myths, we do our best to do that, and to point everyone to the Savior of the world, Jesus Yeshua, who, in terms of his his, his earthly identity, is a Jew and returns as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, anyway, thank you, Mike. Yeah. So to your, to your question. Okay, this is from Isaiah 43.3 in the Hebrew. I just wanted to focus in on mainly one word. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if my Hebrew sounds bad um, and rough, please forgive me. <laughs> All right, not a problem. Ki'ani Elohecha Kadosh Yisrael Moshiach, or is it Moshiecha? Mushiecha. Natate Pafrecha Pafrecha Mitzrayim Kush Usava Tach Kecha. Okay, but this word here next to Israel is Mushiecha. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Is that a word play with Moshiach, the word Savior? No. Not, not in the least. No, not not in the least. Uh, Mashiach and Moshiach are different vowels and and different pronunciations. One with a chet and and one with an ayin. And even then, Mashiach is not a a commonly used word. For example, in, in the book of Isaiah, it's not a word that that you find used. Uh, so no, it, it it Moshiach, Savior, Deliverer, is is uh, a common word. You have it uh, used a number of times. It can refer to an earthly savior or deliverer. 
It's from the root Yasha, so the same root from which we get Yehoshua or Yeshua, uh, Jesus, ultimately Savior, coming from that same root. Um, but no, it's it's not. Uh, and by the way, good job on the Hebrew. You had a, a couple things where you, you didn't get the accent right, where it's the second to the last syllable instead of the last syllable. But otherwise, good job. So yeah, Moshiach is is not a play on Mashiach. Again, different different vowels at the beginning, one with the long O, the Mo, the other with the ah sound, an ah sound, and then a very different final letter. So yeah, I, I, you can have plays on words that are like that, but nobody would think of that just reading it in Hebrew, especially in Isaiah's day. That would not be something that came to mind at all. And God often identifies himself as the Moshiach, the Savior, Deliverer of Israel. But thank you for asking. All right? Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you. Sure sure thing. 866-34-TRUTH. Hey, good job on being able to read the Hebrew there. That's not uh, done overnight. All right. uh, We go to Jamaica. Russell, welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Hi, Dr. Brown. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Beautiful. Thank you for everything that you do. Mine is a two-part question. Yes, sir. Um, the current situation that is happening in Iran. I have seen a couple of Christian articles and a couple of biblical um, prophetic words that um, imply that the Iranian regime will become unstable or weakened and even citing the current revival of Christianity in, yes. that is going on in the underground in Iran. Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile that? Where Bible prophecy says that um, Israel is going to be beset with, by the northern kingdoms, which will include Russia, Iran, Turkey, etc., if you subscribe to that biblical, um, prophetic um, perspective. Yes, so sir. I'm just trying to understand if Iran is going to become weak, how can they be a great force that is going to come against Israel? And the second part, it's related in terms of, can you explain how there, I think you said it in the past, where, you, there, where biblical prophecy alludes to a great moral decline in the world, and things are going to look a bit, you know, um, things are going to be looking down, but at the same time, you also allude to the fact that there's also going to be a, 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 a revival. So there's going to be yeah. both a revival and um, things looking down simultaneously in the end time. Yeah, so I'm trying so, to link the two questions in terms of Iran's instability, yeah. instability, maybe instability, but also them being a great kingdom. And also in, in end times, so how can it be both a revival, if you could expound on that, please? As well yes, as, sir. Um, as yeah. Yes, sir. And, and, yep. Thank you very much, Russell. And uh, I always love the Jamaican accent. It's got a special dignity when I hear it. Okay. Number one, we don't know where we stand exactly on the prophetic calendar. When I got saved in 1971, so that's almost 50 years ago. I was 16. And we were told Jesus is coming any minute, any day. The prophecies were lining up. There was tremendous excitement. And we knew certainly within a number of years, it can't be that long that Jesus will return. The idea that almost 50 years later, we'd still be here. And here I got saved at 16. Our oldest granddaughter just turned 19. Wow. So 
a lot of things could happen before we get to the end. In other words, Iran could have a great Christian revival and, and multitudes, tens of millions could get saved. And then there could be a, a radical Islamic revival even greater than the current one that we've seen that starts to oppress and kill and destroy. And, and these things could still happen. Uh, is there going to be a great falling away where many come to faith and many turn away? So we just don't know. That, that's the first thing. The second thing, if Iran is a player in final war against Israel, as many would argue from the prophecies of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we can't be dogmatic about it because there's a lot of mystery in these prophecies and how they will exactly unfold. But I, I could easily see a tide swinging in one direction, sir, where, where the Iranian regime collapses, that the God does move in the country and many are saved, but then that there's a pushback against it, that rather than Iran becoming a dominant Christian nation, that the church now comes under persecution and a more radical form of Iran rises up. So these things are, are possible. We simply don't know exactly how things are going to unfold. And I just say that when we're looking at biblical prophecy unfolding— Let's do paint the main lines and emphasize the main lines of what we know Scripture plainly teaches as best as we can. And then painting within those lines, maybe use pencil, because you may have to do some erasing and redoing. All right, we'll be back with you live from Oxnard, California, God willing, tomorrow, right here. 